0: knew that if the Ephesians understood who they were and began to live in Christ, the world would never be the same. The same can be true for today, if we understand what it means to live in Christ. If we understand what it means to live in Christ. If we understood what it meant to live in Christ. If we understand what it means to live in Christ, to, live in Christ to be the church, our city and our world would never be the same. 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 Good morning. I'm so glad to look out and see each one of you here today. I'm excited to celebrate baptism it's good to have a family here with us and so now we get to open the word of God the living word of God the amazing word of God the only book ever written where every time you read it the author is in the room with you interpreting it for you at that very moment and so how cool is that that the God of all creation came this morning to visit with us and to let us learn just a little bit more about who he is and what He wants for us in our lives. It's also good to look over and see my mom here today, um, out of the hospital, out of rehab, and uh, here worshiping with us, and I'm so very grateful for your prayers. So, God bless you. So today, we're going to continue that verse-by-verse understanding of the book of Ephesians. We're in Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 3 through 14. But let me give you the backstory because the backstory is relevant to the present story. It's imperative that we understand it. The book of Ephesians is written into how many sections? Two. One is about how we should believe, and the second section, chapters 4, 5, and 6, are about how we should behave. We've been through the what we should believe and the key verse there was Ephesians 1.3 where the scripture says that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Now let me take that to where you'll understand it. Anything and everything you'll ever need in your life to live a life that's pleasing to God has already been granted and given to you and is in your possession as a child of God. So everything you need, you've been given. And Paul says that everything I'm going to tell you about how you should live has already been handed to you. So when we look and say, I can't, or it won't work, or it works for somebody, and it doesn't work for me, that means that we have believed a lie that Satan sold. Because we have everything that we need. Now as we work through the believe section, we got over to the behave section. And in Ephesians chapter four, verse twenty-two, and I'll read this to you right quick. You hold your place, or you can flip over real quickly. Um, Ephesians four twenty, starting verse twenty. But you have not so learned Christ. Indeed, if you have heard Him and have been taught by Him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, in verse 24, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So in this section from Ephesians chapter 420 over to Ephesians chapter 520, in how we should behave, Paul is talking to us about our purity, a pure life, a moral life. And he told us to put off some things. In fact, we saw that he told us to put off lying and to put on truth. He told us to put off stealing and put on labor. He told us to put off corrupt words and replace them with kind words. And on and on. So all through that, that's what he's talking to us about today. So to be consistent with what he's done up to this point, as we read this section of Scripture... He's going to tell us to take off some old things and then tell us what to put on in its place. So let's read together Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with these empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light for whatever makes manifest is light therefore he says awake you who sleep arise from the dead and christ will give you light please join me in praying father i pray that as we understand to how to spiritually change clothes this morning god that as we examine your word and we examine ourselves god show us how to to take off the old man show us how to put on the new man Show us how to speak truthfully to you, to ourselves, to each other. And Lord, I pray that we will work towards and for the advancement of the name of Christ. Not just in our words, but in our lives. God, we love you, we thank you, and we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul has told us how to believe. He's told us how to behave. In this section on purity, he said, you got to change clothes. He said, what, the clothes you have on are dirty clothes. I want you to put on some clean clothes. And then he begins to name which items are not clean. And he says, hey, now go to your spiritual chest, your spiritual drawers, and pull out these clean clothes and put them on. And so this morning, he's told us to take off six things. He told us to take off immorality. He told us to take off impurity. He told us to take off covetousness. He tells us to take off filthy and flippant words. Because each one of those are not fitting. He says they don't fit right. You know those clothes you put them on. You look in the mirror and you think. I liked it on the rack but it just doesn't fit right now. You know what I'm talking about? So it hangs in the closet. Well you're going to have some clothes in your closet that just are not going to fit right anymore because you are a follower of Christ. You're going to put them on, and you're going to go, well, I used to like it, but what's wrong now? Paul says you've got to take those things off. So let's one by one talk about the things that Paul tells us to take off. The first thing he says I want you to do is to take off immorality. Now, that is the Greek word porneia. It literally means fornication. It means sexual activity before marriage. Paul is not... Um, lessening adultery or other kinds but he says in this particular instance incident I want you to take off fornication now why would he do that why wouldn't he put other things in there he again he's not eliminating the atrocity or the pain or the hurt of the sinfulness or the grossness of of another sin but probably there was something going on in the church that made him want to use this word in particular He said, I want you to put this off, porneia. And the reason I draw that conclusion is that in other places, when he um, actually names the word adultery, he calls it the word mohea. It's M-O-I-C-H-E-A. And it specifically means, in the Greek language, that. So Paul is telling us to be pure, not to be immoral. And he says, in this particular incident, I want you to focus on this thing. So in this case, immorality means the fulfilling of sexual desire before marriage. Porneia means sex before marriage. Fornication is against God's will. And again, further evidence that that he's talking about it in this place comes from 1 Corinthians 7.2. He says, Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, porneia, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Now, another place this word's used, and this is very interesting. This was one of those ah moments for me. In John 8, 41, when Jesus is talking to the disciples about their behavior, not to the disciples, but to the Pharisees about their lifestyle and some of the things that they were doing to people, it says in John 8, 41, Then they said to him, We were not born out of fornication. We have one Father, one God. So Jesus has turned the heat up on the Pharisees. The Pharisees don't have a really good answer. So what do they do? It's called ad hominem. They look at him and they make an argument that's not relevant. They get the focus off of them and they put it on Jesus and said, Well, you don't have a daddy. We were not born out of fornication. The Pharisees, one of their greatest faults <laughs> was they could not believe in the virgin birth of Christ. It's the same word, porneia. So when you're making an argument in Scripture, it's good to have resources that take you back to the place to help you fully understand what you're talking about in that particular passage. And so if we take John eight forty one and we take the Matthew passage and all of those things together, we understand, 5-3, that that's what he's talking to us about in this place. Now, after he says that I want you to get rid of immorality, fornication, he says the next thing that I would like for you to eliminate, go back with me in 5-3, but fornication and all uncleanness. That uncleanness there is the word um, for unnatural desires, unnatural sexual desires. So in other words, in particular, he, he would be talking about homosexuality. But now let me tell you what I think is important for the church. The church is always camped on one and kind of said oops on the other. And here Paul is drawing a clear understanding that there are two things that are an offense. There's two things that we need to take off. Because hear me, in fact I tell the, the kids at FCA this all the time. You're 18 to 22 years old and you're dating someone, you probably are going to be sexually tempted. Now, it goes beyond that. Understand what I'm telling you. The problem is not sexual temptation. The problem is what are you going to do with it? The, it's actually a, you're being who God made you to be when you have sexual temptation. But Paul is saying as a believer, as a child of God, as one who's walking with God, he says there's something you've got to take off. You've got to take off fornication. You've got to take off an unnatural desire. And you got to put on something else. And again, we're going to get to what he tells us to put on to help us to understand this moment. But the, he says there to us, put this away, an unnatural sexual desire. Over a half a dozen times, Paul, in Romans and Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians and Colossians uses this word and here he adds it to fornication to help us understand it's not just sex before marriage in a heterosexual way, but it's also sex before marriage or sex in a homosexual way. You understand what I'm getting at here. And then what he tells us is as a church we don't need to look at one and go, ah! And the other one say, it's all God forgives. God does forgive. God does cleanse. God does restore. God does make us new creatures. But in the church, we have a tendency to look for the sins we don't commit and make those worse. You hear me? That is an important, important, important word for us as the church. Paul draws no distinction. He says both are gross. Both are hideous. Both are against the way and the will and the work of God in your life. And if you want your best life, he says, put that off and put on something else. So he takes us away from this idea of immorality, says, remove yourself from it. He takes us away from impurity, unnatural desires, and says, put your mind away from it. And then oddly enough, it looks like he takes a major turn here because the next things that he says, To put off, he says, put off fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness. Now, that's the 10th commandment, right? You shall not covet. Interesting to me. So, why would Paul take two blatant comments about sexual behavior and then put with those two words the word covetousness? And I think it's important because... Paul says that, yes, before marriage, you may want to have sexual relations. But you are desiring something that is not from me. I created it. I've got a time frame for it. I know when I want it to happen. He says, but if you go in this route, you're going to covet something, desire something. You're going to have an inordinate desire for something that is out of my timing. And the right thing at the wrong time is still the wrong thing. He says, you may have been born where you have an unnatural desire. But I'm telling you, as a child of God, that that unnatural desire is not pleasing to me. So if you're born with that, if that's how you feel, if that's what's in your nature and and what you're driven towards or drawn towards, Paul says, then what I want you to do is stand, and I don't want you to covet something that I have forbidden. So he's talking to us, he's teaching us something here. And covetousness is a strong, inordinate craving, an inability to be content and satisfied with what God has given and commanded. You see, I deserve more. I deserve more than what God's given me. I deserve something different than God's given me. I desire and deserve something more than what God has given me to the point that I'm going to thumb my nose at God and say, I'll go after it anyway. That's sin. Temptation is not sin. Temptation is a a moment in time where we can look and say, God, you are good, you are perfect, you have told me that You have supplied me with every spiritual blessing. That's why it's important to understand the whole book. In Ephesians 1, 3, he said, I have blessed you with every spiritual blessing, anything you're ever going to need. So when Satan lies to me and says, you need more than God has given you or you need something different than God has given you, then I am swapping the truth of God For a lie of Satan, and and now I am walking off a path that brings honor to God and my best life to me. But hear me. When I sin grossly, or you sin grossly, we do not sin in a vacuum. Okay? It's not there. We hurt the people around us. We hurt the individuals in our lives. We hurt large groups, small groups. We hurt faces. We hurt people with names. And people that we care about. And Satan can trick us to believe and we can deceive ourselves to the point we believe. And we begin to justify, oh, at least I'm not born the child of a fornicator. You see what I'm saying? Jesus was talking to them about something that would set them free. Jesus was talking to them about something that would give them eternal life that would give them the fullest and greatest blessings of God. And instead of hearing it, they began to defend or justify. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know about you and your sin, but I know when I get in mine, I love to justify. I love to give you all the reasons it's okay for me or all the reasons that it's not bad in this moment or why maybe God was talking to everybody else in the room but not Chris. You see, I think that's why it's so very important when the scripture says do not be deceived that we don't think it's just some ethereal thing out there that happens to other people. No, it is the sin that happens to even the most qualified or the saints that have lived for God the longest or people in other positions or whatever. It happens to everybody. Satan's not creative, but he is crafty. What he did in the garden, he's doing in Jonesboro. Okay. And Paul says three things here. Don't be immoral. He says, don't be unnatural. And when you catch yourself being tempted in one of those directions, he says, be careful not to covet. Now, interesting question. Why wouldn't Paul throw the 10th ten, the commandment in there? I mean, it's a perfect place. Crossed my mind when I read it. Thou shalt not covet. But if you begin to think about it, the law, the 10th commandment, was a, con- a legal contract. It said, don't put this in your life. But hear me, the purpose of the law was to show you what you could not do on your own. So if he had thrown the law in there, then it would simply be up to you to have enough willpower or self-will. In fact, he didn't say that at all. What he, what he began to tell us here in this idea would be um, something we'd find in Hebrews 13, 5, where it says, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The strength is not in my ability to say, I won't, I won't, I won't, I won't, and then I do. The strength comes from, I can't. He never said I could. He can. He always said he would. Now listen to me. As a child of God, knowing that, can quote that, have taught it, believed it, understood it, had it since childhood and grandma gave it to you. You can still be deceived. David, man after God's own heart, had seen God work miracles after miracle after miracle in his life. A miracle is anything that can only be attributed to God, by the way. It's not just some woohoo; It's something only God can do. David saw the miracles. David was still deceived. You hear me. If David can be deceived, so can everybody in this room. So you're not more spiritual to name it and claim it and say, I can't be deceived. No, you're more spiritual to say, but by the grace of God, I'll be deceived in the next second if I don't rely on him and call on him. That's the victory. So Paul puts covetousness there in a natural spot when you begin to understand that he is saying at any moment that you desire something that is not God's best for you, then you become covetousness. Covetousness begins with a thought. Leads to a dwelling in your mind. A pondering. Leads to a planning in your mind. Leads to an action in your mind. Leads to a justification of your life you hear me, to a behavior that you wake up one day and say, oh my goodness, how did this happen, oh it can be small, or it can be big, doesn't matter which one it is, because the step, (laughs) the one inch step away from God is no more away from God than the two mile step away from God that's the justification you hear me oh it's just this far well this far sends you to hell it will so Paul he's talking he says don't don't be immoral he says don't don't be impure he says don't covet and then I think these next three better serve us if we group them together so let's call them filthiness and flippant words Verse 4 says, let there be no filthiness, foolish talk, nor coarse jesting. Now, I think Paul is concerned about two things here. Dirty minds and flippant attitudes. You know what I'm talking about, a dirty mind? Like, you going down the road, you look up and you see something and you have a thought and you go, ooh, I shouldn't have thought that. You see it in a cloud, you see it in an object, you see it, and it's, it's a dirty mind. You can't talk about trees, clouds, or anything, because as soon as you do, your mind goes to a place it shouldn't. Now, you got to hear me. Here's the struggle with this. Some of those things are outright and doggone funny. You can't help it. You look and you go, what? And then you start laughing. So that's a real struggle. For the believer, if you're standing on this stage today, it's a really big struggle for you. Because you're like, oh, I didn't just see that. And then you think, well, I got to tell somebody. And then you tell somebody, and oh, what have you done? But Paul says, if you really do want my best life, step away from a dirty mind. Walk yourself away from a dirty mind. Walk yourself away from an attitude that, that does that one danger is that we become so dirty minded that our natural response is to see heal vulgarity in most anything another danger the, the dirty mind the filthiness or the flippant word the other, the other danger there that Paul's warning us of is that we become so desensitized that we don't see dirty in anything You go to a movie and you come out. How was the movie? Pretty good movie. I think I only heard 32 F words. <laughs> I mean, here's the truth now. If we're going to get better, we're going to have to get real. All right? And I know you've heard it, and I know you've probably thought it. Or you know what? I think they only said God's in His name this many times. Well, Paul is saying, don't get there. Don't be desensitized. Don't be so desensitized that you don't see dirty, and don't be... So dirty that you see dirty in everything. Because it's a danger for us as children of God. Paul condemns. He says, Get rid of all filthiness, coarseness on the one hand, and foolishness and levity on the other. I guess what he would be saying is, It's not good for us, us being children of God. It's not good for us to be warned. It's good for us to be warned, I'm sorry. It's good for us to be warned, not to make light of God's creation or God's command. He's holy. And so how do we do that? I think it's practice, I'll be honest with you. I think it's accountability. I think it's um, taking off one and putting on the other. Paul said he had to beat his body into submission. In other words, it didn't just happen. He said, you know what? I had to wake up and say, not literally that, but it's a beating of that mind that's, okay, I will not dwell. If I catch myself, if my natural response is to dwell when I catch myself dwelling, then what I'm going to do is say, that's not of me. So I'm going to take off this. I'm going to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So Father, help me to think your thought, to see your action, your attitude, your opinion of where I ought to go. So, that's what he's told us we need to take off. So what do we need to do? We need, he says if he gives us an attitude that we need to adopt. Go back with me to verse 4 when he says this. Um, but to get the whole sentence, we'll read 3. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting. That's two times he said not fitting, right? He says two things here, two groups. They are not fitting. In other words, don't put them on. He says they are not fitting for you, but rather. In other words, take these things off, but rather. And what does he say put on? Thanksgiving. What? Wait a minute, God. You just told me not to fornicate. You just told me not to give myself over to unnatural desires. You just told me not to covet things that, that are not pleasing to you. And you're going to tell me that the weapon of choice is thanksgiving? How about could I have a sword, a bazooka, an atomic bomb? Because you don't know what goes on in this mind. But the perfect word of God says that the answer to those things up there that we need to take off is that we need to put on thanksgiving why what would make thanksgiving such a powerful tool well if covetousness is is the understanding of i want something that god has forbidden or i want something that i should not have or i desire something that god says is not desirable then what i'm saying is that god is cheating me God's got like a good sack of toys over here and he gives them to everybody else and he's got this little old trinket box that he walks by and says, hey Chris, you pull one out of here and when the moment I believe that, I'm saying God is not good. And Paul says the antidote to all of that is a grateful heart. Man, God, you left heaven and came to earth. Was born through a virgin. You lived a sinless life. You walked into the garden and said, Nevertheless, not my will, God, but your will be done. You were arrested and shamed and beaten. And you went to that cross with me on your mind. He did that for us. And then when you were buried in that tomb, you came out just like you promised. And you walked around and showed everybody... I did it, and then you now are ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And you're forever making intercession for us right now. So God, you did all of that, and you're going to hold out one little thing. Oh, the conviction, the arrogance that I, we have when we get there and we believe that there's something better or we want something better than what God has for us. Paul says, be thankful. Be thankful. And lay, in fact, later down in chapter 5, verse 20, he says, And everything give thanks. Everything. That attitude of thankfulness is very powerful. Action. Plan. Do you keep a log of what you're thankful for? Do you write down every day, God, thank you that I drove to work and not one of those maniacs hit me? You know what I'm saying? God, thank you that I went to the refrigerator and pulled out food to eat. God, thank you that I went through the drive-thru and I had money to pay for it. God, thank you for the blessing of my family, my wife, my children, my grandchild, my mom sitting in church. Begin to thank God for all the things he's done. And then when we take our minds off of what we wrongfully want and put them on what we rightfully have, every spiritual blessing there's a work that God does there. It's a God work that He begins to put in us contentment, appreciation, desire, respect, understanding. Is it overnight? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe somebody stands up and says, it happened overnight. But I think that it is an exercise in your life that you choose to do it. And the scripture says that if I fail today I wake up tomorrow and his mercy is new when? Every morning and we don't use the mercy and the grace as an excuse to keep on but we use it as the the motivation to bow down to him so we've got an attitude that we need to adopt we need to replace impurity with thanksgiving why he replaces them with gratitude we've already talked about but listen to me this is what I think verse 5 helps us to understand here is that For you know this, that no fornicator, no unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. That does not mean you will lose your salvation. But it means if before salvation that you are focused on all those things that you will not recognize the need to bow your heart to God. But now for the child of God who's born again, it also means that you will start living for yourself and not for the glory and the pleasing of God. Because let me tell you what covetousness does covetousness dethrones God. You say what do you mean there? Well remember we've done this in the past that we say here's my heart and in the middle of my heart is a chair. Well it's a one-seater and either God is on that throne or I am on that throne. At the minute that I become covetous at that moment I'm saying God you are not good. What you have for me is not good. So I'm going to boot you off the throne and the second that I boot him off the throne by default I put me on the throne it's not may not even be a choice you may be saying oh no 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 I want God on the throne but at the second that you begin to covet you ah, he's out you're on it so we dethrone him and at that moment that we dethrone him we are what the scripture calls A carnal man or a carnal woman may be born again, may be going to heaven, but we cannot be under the rule and the lordship of Christ if we're on the throne and he is not. Now that becomes the challenge for the church. That becomes the challenge for Chris. That becomes the understanding of, wait a minute, gratitude really is unbelievably powerful. Because God says that he does not withhold the good and perfect gifts from you. God says that if you love me and you're called according to my purpose, that I will cause all things to work together for the good, for your good. So earthly desires dethrone God. Gratitude, the opposite, (laughs) enthrones God. It puts him back on the throne God, you are worthy of worship. God, you are worthy of praise. God, you are the absolute best choice. There is no other choice than you to control my life. So it puts him back on the throne. And yes, I may wrestle. Yes, I may say, wait a minute, God, this doesn't seem fair. But in all my declarations, I am saying, God, you are good. You are right. And God, I don't get it. But, you know, once we start getting old, we, look, we, we bend down and we pick up something off the floor. You know the phrase, right? You look around and see if there's anything else you need to pick up. I'm there, okay? So you're like, what else is down here? While I'm down here, let me get it. Well, in your life, when you say, God, you're on the throne and God takes you into the valley, don't put the focus all on yourself and say, woe is me and my life is hell and this is no good. But while you're down there, look around and see if there's anybody else you can take out. That is the valley. It's who can you pick up while you're down there. Because good God would not put you down there for your harm. He would put you down there for your good. And he says that he put us together as a body for the edification of the saints. That means the lifting up of. Okay? So gratitude enthrones him. How does Paul motivate us? I've already touched on this a little bit, but the first thing I will tell you what he doesn't do. He doesn't motivate us with a legal contract. Thou shalt not covet. That's what he does not do. Because the legal contract, as I said earlier, was set up so that you would see that you needed something greater than yourself. If we could live up to the law, Jesus died in vain. So Paul does not throw a guilt trip out there and say, here's a legal contract. Ah, you won't make it. But what he actually does do for us is some of a little bit of an understanding that it's a heart decision. It's a heart choice. My mind may want to covet, but my heart wants to please God. So God, here's my heart. I choose you God, it's a work of the heart. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. You have told me that through Christ, salvation planned by God, purchased by Jesus, presented by the Holy Spirit who lives inside of me, you have told me that you will have given me everything I need. So, God, I wake up today telling you not that I can, but, God, that I cannot on my own. I only can because of who you are. I only can because you live inside of me. I only can because you conquered death, hell, and the grave, and sin is no more. I only can when I surrender myself. I only can when I submit myself to you. It comes from a deep agreement that the will of God is not only good, but that the will of God is perfect. What He does, He motivates us. He says it's not fitting. He motivates us by saying that you need to be renewed in your mind. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Um, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I've got to deprogram what I hear every single day. And I've got to reprogram it with what the Word of God says. That's why I need to be in church. Let me tell y'all, without wife and children, and mom, and church, and friends, and coworkers. My mind would go all the way from Christ. That's why he says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Man, let me tell you, if you can live for Jesus and sit at home all the time and never come to church, then you are better than I am. Because I got to put fuel in the tank. And let me tell you, my car will not run on yesterday's gas yesterday's gas is gone I got to have today's gas spiritually speaking I can't live on yesterday's sermon I can't live on yesterday's interaction I can't live on yesterday's victory yesterday's victory can be one of the worst things that happens in the life of a believer because you say look at how good it is and how good it was and then all of a sudden you are no more living in the day it's a now. So Paul does that. Let me tell you what Martin Luther said in 1520 in an essay called The Freedom of a Christian. He says, Although I am an unworthy and condemned man, my God has given me in Christ all the riches of righteousness and salvation without any merit or work on my part out of pure free mercy so that from now on I need nothing except faith which believes that this is true. Why should I not therefore freely, joyfully, with all my heart and with an eager will do all the things which I know are pleasing and acceptable to such a Father who has overwhelmed me with his inestimable riches? In other words, for the believer, born again, covetousness with all of its impurities is unfitting and out of the question. They don't go together. That's why Paul is urging us to gospel obedience, not legal obedience. He knows it's Christ. But then, why? Why, why, why? With all of that, why? Let's go back to verses 5 and 6. Why does he do this? For for this you know. He's told us all of this and told us what we can have and he tells us how to get rid of it. And then in the close of it, he throws in verses 5 and 6 the threat of hell. That is an odd understanding to me. So let's go back to it. He says, For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with these empty words. What are the empty words? Oh, it's okay. If it it works for you, you do it. You be you. If it feels good, do it. It's not that bad. That is counter to the word of God. The Scripture nowhere ever says, you be you. The Scripture says, you be dead to you. The Scripture says to be alive in Christ. The Scripture says to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Him. And at that moment that I put that covetousness in my life, I no longer want to pick up my cross and follow Him. I want to pick up my desire and satisfy me. And so Paul says, be careful. You who sit in church. This was written to the church at Ephesus. Now we know that Paul knows that that these things that he's writing about, he wrote about them because they were happening. They were immoral. They were impure. They were coveting. They were filthy and they were desensitized. So he's writing to them. He says, when you're sitting, gathering with the other believers, don't sit there deceived with a false sense of security that you name the name of Jesus and life is good and you're going to heaven. He said, you better wake up because look down at the other part of it, the last verse that I read to you. Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead. Live people don't need to rise up. Dead people need to rise up. He says, dead people, if you will rise up, the light of Christ will shine on you. Do not deceive yourself just because you name a location that you go to church that you have the life of Christ in you. (laughs) Paul is not threatening. Paul is loving. Paul is giving you the very thing that will give you life. And if you, and he says, don't be deceived. You can be dead and not know it. Asleep and unaware. Have you ever taken a nap and wake up and said, huh, did I fall asleep? And everybody in the room says, yeah, we heard you. I hear that happens. You see what I'm saying? So, what is my heart for you this morning? Ask God, are you dead? Ask God if you're asleep. Ask God if you've got a heart that covets. And if you do, quickly, oh, quickly, repent and say, God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I don't know when and I don't know where, but I kicked you off that throne. And I believe that what you wanted wasn't the best. So I started going after what I wanted. And you alone are God. And I'm sorry. You say, well, how do I know if I'm asleep? How do I know if I'm dead? The scripture says, awake, O sleeper. Arise from the dead. Christ will give you light. You just got to ask him. Ask him. And when he speaks, don't you delay. You say yes right now. I can tell you. It's an amazing thing. What is the story that says these are the best of times and these are the worst of times? It's like you're sitting on the top of a, of a fence and depending on which way you fall is which one it is. Fall towards Jesus.